Today's sermon text is Luke 1, 57 through 80. <clears throat> it can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 856. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Well, good morning. It's good to see you here this morning with lights on your faces and heat in the building and microphones that are working. Uh, if you were here last week, it was a little more stripped back since we didn't have power in here, but... Uh, I did mention, I wanted to mention last week, but thank you to the many of you in this room who like scrambled for an hour to make last week work. Very grateful for that. Um, kids, uh, thank you for singing and a special thank you to Eliza. Uh, thank you, Eliza, just for your leadership and pointing our kids to Christ through, through music every single week. If you come to core training, like, uh, so that's our Sunday school stuff, you'll hear some great things if you're adults. I come to core training, I love, thank you Corey for teaching, it's great. I come to core training so my kids hear the gospel over and over again, and uh, I'm very blessed by that, so uh, thank you for, for the work that you put into that. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us, and we'll turn to this text in Luke chapter 1. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, would you fill our hearts this morning with your very joy? at your mercy to us. We pray now, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I love the songs that we just sang, but if, if you are aware of kind of what happened, like secular musicians who's popular, you'll know that it is the year of Taylor Swift. And this year, uh, Taylor Swift released a single called Karma that reached number two on the Billboard Hot 100. I'd, I have no idea what the Billboard Hot 100, I don't know a single song on there, so I'm speaking just on things I've read, but just know that it got there. Uh, it's it's a tune that, that talks about the justice that she thinks is coming to somebody who has wronged her and the innocence that she enjoys. Uh, she thinks she has a reward coming to her for her own innocence and whatever matter it is she's singing about. This is the the chorus she sings. Karma is my boyfriend. Whatever that means. Karma is a is a god. Karma is the breeze in my hair on the weekend. Karma's a relaxing thought. Aren't you envious that for you it's not? I keep my side of the street clean. I, in other words, I, I do my part. But you wouldn't know what I mean. You, you don't worry about yourself. Now, I, I've, I tremble a little bit to bring up Taylor Swift because I make quick enemies of the Swifties in the room and quick friends maybe with the anti-Swifties in the room. That's not why, why that's here. I think what she's singing about there is something that a lot of people would intuitively say sounds right. right? That karma, uh, which means you do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad, that that is the thing that is operating uh, in the world. But I just want to ask if that is right. Does, does the world operate by karma? By a you do good, you get good, you do bad, and you'll get bad. Is that, is that the kind of world that we see? And is that even a vision, ultimately, of life that we would say is good and beautiful? Does that kind of life give you joy that we just sang about? I'd, I'd be willing to say that for most, we don't think of karma like a relaxing thought, like Taylor Swift sings about it, but karma produces anxiety and fear even. And gratefully, what we read, read her, earlier, what we heard read earlier for us in Luke 1, I think points us to a better way, points us to the truth of how God has created the world and who he is. And it shows that there is better news out there than this God does not exalt the idea of karma, but he, he shows himself here in divine mercy. And that is so much better news. So here's, here's the main point of the passage that we're looking at this morning, and therefore I hope it's the main point of this message. The light of salvation has mercifully dawned in the coming of Christ. The light of salvation has mercifully dawned in the coming of Christ. Uh, If you read the passage through this week, if you heard it read, you probably saw that word mercy. It comes up a few times. There's a few different places, some some stories we read of God's mercy here. And so we're just going to divide the text looking at how God shows his mercy throughout this passage. And my prayer this week is that we would. And when we think about Christmas, what we would think about beyond gifts and all the presence, we would think of God's mercy, of his kindness to us. And we would find that not just true. I, I think many of you would say, well, that's true. 
I hope you see that as beautiful, as something of giving your life for. So if you have your Bibles, you want to keep them open to Luke chapter 1. We'll be looking at the text a few times, just kind of looking down, reading through that. I want to point things out to you. Uh, Over the past several weeks as we've been in Luke, uh, these first couple of chapters, Luke is going back and forth between John the Baptist and Jesus. So a couple weeks ago, we saw an angel, Gabriel, announcing the birth of John to Zechariah. Last week, we looked at the announcement of the birth of Jesus. This week, we'll talk about the birth of John. Next week is Christmas Eve, and we'll talk about the birth of Jesus. But there, there are a few things, just if you missed this in thinking through the announcement that Gabriel makes to John, you, you need to know that story for this to make sense. So uh, flip back, if you need to, just a page or two to uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 13. This is where the angel Gabriel comes to the old priest, Zechariah, who who has not been able to have children. Zechariah and Elizabeth are childless, but the angel appears, the angel Gabriel comes and makes this promise in verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. That's a promise that Zechariah finds almost too good to be true. And so he says, how can I know this to be true? How, how How can this happen? What's the sign that this is going to take place? And Gabriel turns to him in verse 20 and says, Behold, this, this is the sign that he gets. You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. It's this divine discipline that comes upon Zechariah for not believing the word of the Lord. And that brings us to our passage this morning. That's the background you need. But now turn down to verse 57 and 58. And the first thing we see is a merciful birth story. Verse 57. Now the time for Elizabeth, uh, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. Uh, In the late 90s and early 2000s, there was this show on TLC called A Baby Story. It was like the heyday of reality TV, and I I was a junior high and high schooler, so I didn't get to control the television. I just would pass through, and sometimes my mom would have this show on that's like 30 minutes to an hour long, talking about the last few weeks of pregnancy, what the, the birth story, the first few weeks of coming home. Like, that's where we want all the attention to be place. That's, that's where, if we're talking about birth, that's what happens. But here, we just get one verse. Nine months of pregnancy, untold years of fertility, one verse. John was born. God is faithful. He fulfills his promise. And it's not that the birth is unimportant. Jesus himself later will say that John is a major figure, not just in the story of the Bible, but in the story of human history. So it's not that he is unimportant, but you, it's that birth is kind of normal. Uh, if I look out and just say, what's the one or two things that every single person in this room has in common? It's that every single one of you was born. It happens about 385,000 times a day. Uh, it happened this week in our own church as 
DJ who was here and on drinking his coffee, uh, and his wife gave birth this week to, uh, to a baby boy. So we, this is a, a normal kind of event, but birth may be common. It, it may happen frequently, but we, we should see here, even in the text, it's showing us that it's more than just a natural event. It, it's common, but but with those with eyes to see, what does the text tell us that it is? But an act of God's great mercy to Elizabeth. Now, of course, we could say that you know the story, so you want it, it is easy, and we should say God's mercy is on clear display here in the the fact that this is a very improbable birth. His mercy shines brightly here. But even if God's mercy shines brightly in her story, don't diminish the fact. That every common event, the common event of something like the birth of a child, is an act of divine mercy from the Lord. In other words, with those with uh, uh, through natural eyes, the, these kind of things look like nothing of note. It takes a little space in a newspaper. It's news from one person to another. And with those with eyes to see, we should back up and say, "What kindness God has shown." Do you have, just, I want to press that, do you have eyes to see the ways that God has shown you mercy, even just in the mundane things that you go through every day? So, so think about what happened for you, even just this morning. You woke up and took some deep breaths. You had, I hope, a roof over your head. You likely had something to eat for breakfast Many of you helped children get ready for church. You got in a car. You drove here. We're sitting this week, at least, in a room with heat. And none of that, not none of that is extravagant. None of that is miraculous in that it required God to just bend the laws of nature to make it so. And for that reason, we can say, so what? It's expected. It's, it's kind of normal. But through the eyes of faith, we should see every mundane minute of our lives as an act of mercy from a loving God. A God in who in his kindness has given this to us. So we, we see this in Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Each day... Each day you have an opportunity to see God is merciful. That's what God is displaying as the sun comes up in the sky. That's what he's displaying when you wake up and you have a roof over your head or you have food to eat. God is merciful. He's whispering it in a thousand ways in your life. And beyond the the mercy that God shows Elizabeth here in John's birth, one of the ways that Elizabeth receives mercy here is just in those neighbors and relatives who gather around her in celebration. Right, this is this is not the the main point of the passage, but I do just want to show the picture of what I think is meant to be a good thing to rejoice in and see, and a good thing for us to emulate. A thing that when we see, we should say we want to be like that group of people. So members, specifically members of Philadelphia Baptist Church, this is a promise that you have made to other members of this church. This is not something that super Christians do. This is just normal Christianity. We will rejoice with one another in happiness and bear one another's burdens and sorrows and tragedy and loss. 
Uh, to, to use a, a math metaphor, God intends for you and the lives of others to help divide their burdens and multiply their joys. That is how God has created us to be, how he has called us to live with one another. And think about what it means, what it is here in this little story for Elizabeth, who for decades had these same relatives and friends likely trying Maybe even ineffectually. Maybe, maybe it was hard trying to share burdens and then they get to share in her joys. What mercy from the Lord. Let's, let's not forget to thank God for his mercy to us and all of those mundane things we see from a rising sun to the birth of a child. But let's also strive to be a means of mercy in the lives of brothers and sisters. God wants to use you for that purpose. Now, after... After this merciful birth, the story advances eight days to the day of John's circumcision, where we see a merciful reversal, a merciful reversal. Look here at uh, verse 59. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him, they is like the group of people there to celebrate, they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no. He shall be called John. And they say, said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now circumcision on the eighth day, that's an act of obedience. So they are, Zechariah and Elizabeth are obeying the law that the Lord had given to Abraham in Genesis 17. And there's no law about who, how you name your child, but the custom was to name a child after one of your relatives. So all the witnesses gathered there for this momentous occasion, they assume that this is going to be Zechariah Jr. They're already calling him little Zach or whatever it would be. They have made, if they were in Birmingham, they've already made the monogram onesies that has a big Z across the front of it. And they go and give it to Elizabeth and Elizabeth opens it and says, no, no, but his name He will be called John. That's why we read earlier what we did in verse 13. Remember, Gabriel had already told Elizabeth, this is what you will call him. This is his name. And Elizabeth here, I think, faces what many of us would say is a really difficult choice in some ways. She's got even the peer pressure of all these around her already doing this, already calling him Zechariah. But but when she has before her the, the choice of the traditions of man and even the peer pressure of those around her or the decree of God, she chooses to follow the Lord, to obey. But what about Zechariah? He still can't speak, and it, uh, we've not been told this before, but apparently he can't hear either. They have to make signs to him. But they think maybe if, if Elizabeth wants to do this kind of thing. Maybe Zechariah will talk some sense into her. Maybe he can overturn this weird name. And so Zechariah 
apparently understands their signs. He gets out an ancient whiteboard. He writes on it and turns it around and it says the same thing. His name shall be John. As soon as he does that, as soon as he responds in obedience, as soon as he displays faith and that disbelief that he was rebuked for earlier, as soon as that turns around, his tongue is set free and we see a merciful reversal. This mute priest is now becoming the praising prophet. Now, when you, when you think about Zechariah and you think that for nine months, for nine months, a man who wasn't born this way, it wasn't natural for him to walk around and not be able to communicate, to not hear. This was something that was put upon him. Doesn't that sound maybe harsh? Like, like maybe that's a little much. Maybe a warning, like you were going 10 over the speed limit, so you're just going to kind of get by this time, and next time we'll have to do something a little more serious. But here in our text this morning, what, what I'd hope we see is that the purpose that God had for Zechariah was not just like some sort of, this wasn't just like, again, karmic justice. He did bad, so he gets this thing. This was instead a loving example of fatherly discipline. This was a loving God showing his beloved child that he can trust him. Here's here's the principle at play in seeing what happens in Zechariah's life. God disciplines his children as an act of mercy. God disciplines his children as an act of mercy. Uh, That's what we see later in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews. It's there on your note sheet if you want to see what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God's intention in Zechariah's life was ultimately not to humiliate him, not to just make him shameful in front of all of his friends, the other priests around him. His goal was to humble him, to make him know that he can trust this God. It's an act from God of love and not neglect. And so, friend, when when your sin, when your sin is exposed and you're forced to face the consequences of what it looks like to walk in sin, that's an act of love from a loving God. Uh, When the idol of your life that you have grabbed hold of with both hands and you just don't want to let go, when it is ripped from your hands... That is not karmic justice. That is love from a merciful God. Even for you who say, I'm I'm walking through something that is not directly related to my own sin. Like, how does this thing come about in my life? When you receive a diagnosis that means increased medical bills. Or, Or when you have your routine interrupted. You find yourself at increased dependence upon others to help you with daily necessities. None of that, for you in Christ, none of that is coming from a vindictive God of karma. It is all passing through the loving hands of a merciful Father who has your good in mind. Kids and youth, 
Uh, I think many of you may know this. You probably have heard this from your parents, so now just hear it from one of your pastors. At your best, your parents are not disciplining you because we simply want to punish you. They're trying, we are trying, maybe even ever so imperfectly, to show the loving discipline of a heavenly father. It's done because in mercy we want to treat you as children. And the the, the goal is never to crush you. The goal is to turn you to God and dependence on him and to trust in us. Church members, this too is what we see happening in church discipline. That term can be really scary. What I mean mostly in that is that I trust that you're in the lives of other brothers and sisters and that you want to walk more faithfully with Jesus. And I know that in my own life, and I assume that you would be able to point in your own life to areas where you're not there yet. And so on occasion, we will gently and humbly correct and rebuke one another and say, turn this way. Follow, follow Christ. This little thing I see in your life, it's, it may seem really little right now, but kill it now before it gets big. That's not, that is not hateful speech. That is loving, kind rebuke. I can look around this room even and see some of you who have had that conversation with me as a brother in Christ. All of this is done not with to crush, but with an eye towards merciful reversal. That those who are walking in sin would look and find their way, find safety in obedience to Christ. And for these nine months, God, God was not growling like over in the corner at Zechariah. He was training him. He was training him to trust him. And in mercy, Zechariah learned the lesson. He bursts forth in praise. I, I thought this week of Psalm 30 that, that David penned, but this just could have easily have come from the lips of Zechariah. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. Give thanks to his holy name. His anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Friends, we serve a merciful God who reverses who uses discipline to bring about good in the lives of his people. Now, you can imagine this, this kind of story. Uh, I don't think there are ancient newspapers, I, but this is the thing that like gets through the talk of the town. News travels fast, and so all the people in the region hear the news of this baby born to an older couple, and this priest who couldn't speak for nine months, but who all of a sudden is singing the praises of the Lord. And they... It says they, they wonder and they marvel. They know something, something is happening here. We'll read that several times throughout the Christmas story even. They, they ponder what on earth can God be up to here? What will this child be and what might it mean for us, his people? And that leads to Zechariah's poetic response where he prophesies about a merciful salvation. A merciful salvation. Uh, Look down at verse 67. This is kind of in response, not in response, but it's like Mary's hymn that we we saw last week. This is Zechariah's hymn, his prophecy. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 
to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. It's the season for Christmas cards. Um, you, uh, you probably have received some yourself. We received one yesterday from some friends who, who did have a baby earlier in the year. So they, they did double duty, which is nice. They've got a Christmas card on the front and birth announcement on the back. And you've probably received a birth announcement before or something like it, but there's some information about the child, how, what day he was born on, how much he weighed. There's picture of the baby and then picture of baby with siblings. It's, it's this celebration and an invitation of come rejoice with us in the birth of this child. And that's what you expect to kind of find here in this prophecy, this song from Zechariah. But what's surprising, if you read through and look at it, is this is not mostly about John, his son. There is like this little bit here, verse 76, you child, you will be called the prophet of the most high. That's, That's about John, but the rest is about someone else, that there is a greater one to whom John is pointing John's birth is just like a a trailer before the main attraction, and Zechariah realizes this. And so rather than praising John for what he's going to do, Zechariah's prophecy praises God for fulfilling his promises. He says he's bringing salvation to his people. He's making good on these long-awaited promises. Uh, Kids, you may need your Bible for this one, or if you just were listening really well, you might be able to get this, but... There, there are two Old Testament characters mentioned in this prophecy. Two people who God, uh, who Zechariah says God is fulfilling His promises to them. Do you, do you see those two? Raise your hand if you see the two people who God is fulfilling His promises to. Mac, Abraham and David. Thank you, Max. So there, there are two people here who are, who are God says this is. What God is doing, he's fulfilling his promise to David and to Abraham. Look, look back at verse 69 where he says, God has raised up a horn of salvation. That sounds weird. The horn of salvation is, is like a, a strong part of an animal. He's making the one who is bringing strength. He's raised up the horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Uh, We talked about this just really briefly last week. You should just expect it. You will see this over and over. The Gospels are full of places saying, this is what we saw when he promised to David. I'll try not to, I'll probably point it out every time. I'll try not to quote 2 Samuel 7 every time. You can just memorize it and then we can all look at it collectively together that way if you want to. But this is the promise that's made in 2 Samuel 7. God tells David through Nathan, I'm going to raise up a house for you. 
I'm going to bring someone who is going to come from your line and his throne will last forever. And the prophets go back to that over and over and over. It's why we read earlier in Isaiah 9, this text that has been turned into a well-known Christmas song. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And then this on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so for Israel, this is like their great hope that they are clinging to. It's the thing like you wait, kids, you may wait every year for Christmas. You know that it's coming every year. And so you like probably on December 26, you say how many more days until Christmas But you know that it will get there, even if it takes a while. For Israel, they didn't have a date on their calendar. And so every year there was this pressing anticipation. Is this the year? Is this the year that God makes sure that he fulfills this promise to David? And Zechariah looks and says, this is this is it. He's making sure on his promise. But we can go back even farther than David and go to this promise To Abraham, look back down in verse 72. God visited and redeemed his people to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham. Now, you you may know the Genesis stories really well. If you read through children's Bibles and you don't make it to like Malachi, you get it through Abraham pretty well. Or or you'll many of you will start Bible reading plans on January 1st. I bet you make it to Abraham. So you may know this well. God speaks to Abraham multiple times throughout the Old Testament. So Genesis 15, Genesis 12, Genesis 17. But here, Zechariah is saying something kind of specific. He's talking about this oath that was sworn to Abraham. And that actually comes up, that language comes up explicitly only once. And that's in Genesis chapter 22. Many of you may may know the story. You've probably heard it before. But this is where God appears to Abraham and gives him this command. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This this is a gut-wrenching kind of chapter. Abraham was promised when he was 75 years old that he was going to have a child of promise, and then he has... 25 years later, at the age of 100, this child Isaac. And now, he's told by God to go and sacrifice this child. But you know that if you've read the story, you know that as they go up the mountain, they they lay out the altar. Abraham takes the knife and is ready to slaughter his son, and the Lord stops him. The Lord says that he knows now that Abraham trusts in his steadfast love And he knows that God is faithful to his promise. And there the Lord makes this oath. This is what what I think Zechariah is talking about. It's Genesis 22, 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. 
And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's that's the oath that God makes to Abraham. And God, Zechariah, rather, takes these two two things, this promise to Abraham, this promise to David, and says, what's happening with all of this stuff, all of these miraculous things going on, is that God is fulfilling his promises. He's starting by the Holy Spirit, it says, to to put all of these together. There is salvation and and deliverance from enemies that, that is coming. It says, hold on. But it's not just salvation from enemies like Rome or Babylon or Assyria. Verse 77 looks down and says that this salvation is not necessarily just freedom from oppression, but salvation in the forgiveness of sins. What, what Zechariah, what the Bible tells us we need more than anything is not freedom from chains around our ankles or from oppression from the man, whoever that might be in whatever time period Israel or you find yourself. Because greater than any natural enemy that ever came against Israel was the condemnation that was due for their sins. They are sitting in the way of darkness, overshadowed by death, is how it's put in verse 79. Uh, Laura and I lived in Chicago for, for a couple of years, and when people ask us how it was living in Chicago, our response is almost verbatim. It was great for six months out of the year. And that's because it, we kind of expected the cold. We knew that cold would come. We didn't think about living that far north, what, meant, what that meant for like sunlight. So the sun rises later in winter. It goes down earlier. Even when it's daylight, there are weeks on end where it feels like you never see the sun. So I'm sitting in class with friends and we all just like divert our attention. If there's sun that comes in through a light, like we just want to rush outside and feel some sun rays to know that it's true, that it's real. And friends, that, that is how, that is how the Bible and Zechariah here describes the human condition. Not just those living in darkness from no sunlight, but we are living in the way of darkness, floating in the shadow of death. We may get glimpses of light occasionally, but that, that just say, hey, there is something bright and beautiful out there. But more often than not, it may feel like we're shrouded in darkness. But now, Zechariah says, the sun is beginning to rise. And at this point, it's not that Zechariah can see everything clearly, but as the darkness kind of begins to lift, he looks and says, God is up to something. His merciful salvation is on its way. But, and this is important, his salvation does not come without a cost. Think back to what we saw in the promise that God made to Abraham. On that day when God turned to Abraham and commended him for his faith, he commended him and said, you did not withhold your son, your only son. And now in the coming of Jesus, God himself steps into that role and says to his utterly undeserving people, I have not withheld my son, my only son. And the fulfillment of God's promises, the salvation that comes for his people, it comes, but it comes with a cost. And at Christmas where we celebrate all the good things that we receive for that, don't forget the cost. 
It cost the Son of God leaving glory, leaving the Father's side in undisturbed perfection and entering flesh. It cost the Son of God who never had need to take on himself human nature where he is thirsty and tired and tempted in every way that we are. It costs for the Son of God to bring this merciful salvation that He Himself would go all the way to death on a cross by the hands of people that He spoke into being. The baby who was born in a manger and who we celebrate every year this year one day will die on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And in the cost that is paid, He is demonstrating the kind of God that He is. That He is faithful and merciful beyond all all we can hope or imagine. That he has purchased for his people a salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. And Zechariah spoke what he, Zechariah spoke about this. He never lived to see Jesus get there, but friends, we have. He is living in a place where he talks about the sun kind of lifting over the hills, just beginning to come over. And we, though, brothers and sisters, can say the sun has crested over the hill line and we see now the sun of righteousness risen with healing in his wings. And his merciful salvation is now here and available to all who would call on him. This is how Isaiah, or how Zechariah finishes, right? He, he came to do this to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so, friends, if here in the face of Jesus we see the great cost that was paid and the overwhelming mercy that God would take such a cost and not inflict it upon another, but would take it into himself. And, friend, if you are here today and, and you came to church, if you're just curious about what it is this Bible is about, what Christmas is about, we are so glad that you are here with us. We want to tell you that this is what it is pointing to. A merciful salvation that is given by God for his people in Christ. And at Christmas, we just see the dawn of that happening. And throughout this book of Luke, we're going to see the sun come over the hills as God brings peace to his people. And if that's something that today you say, I feel like I am living in darkness. I can look at myself and I see the sin in my life. I know I am in need, but I have not. I don't feel the sun has risen. Friend, that is available for you. And it is not by getting better. God here is merciful. Merciful. He calls you to turn from yourself and turn to him. And if that is something you would like to do, we would love nothing more today, this Christmas season, to walk with you as you turn to Christ. If that's something you have questions about, something that you want to do, come and find me after service. I would love to talk to you about that after church today. If you came with a friend, find them and go to lunch and just ask them, what does it look like to walk in the way of peace following Christ as my Savior? We find here in Zechariah's song a testimony to merciful salvation that points not to John, but to Jesus. But I want to... Close. I want to finish today by pointing out the ultimate source of this mercy. Right, so Taylor Swift sings that karma is a god, but verse 78 says that everything in this chapter came not because of karma, but because of the tender mercy of our God. 
brothers and sisters, we serve a merciful God. And the character of this God is radically good news for you. Karma, like the, I, I need to do good and I get good, that will tell you that you had better measure up if you have any hope of being accepted. And a God of mercy actually knows you and he knows not just like the good parts of you, he knows your biggest fault. He knows the place where you struggle most and that you are most embarrassed for anybody to ever see. And this God of mercy still comes to you in that place. The God of karma will treat his worshipers like a slave. Go get that for me and I may get something good for you. But the God of mercy treats his people like their sons and their daughters. The God of karma makes us selfish. You can... Love others, try to do them good, hopefully because you get good back for yourself. And the God of mercy pours himself out over and over and over to his people so that we go out and give ourselves over and over and over to the people around us. Not because we think we will deserve and earn something great, but because we've seen the good mercy of our God. Friends, karma may make sense. Right? It sounds like it could be just and equitable, but the truth of mercy is infinitely better, infinitely more beautiful. And if, if you feel your heart pulled towards mercy, I would tell you it's because we serve a God who is in himself merciful. And we see this mercy most clearly in the giving of his son. I'll, I'll leave us with this quote from Dane Ortland. Uh, it's from a book called Gentle and Lowly. If you don't have that book, come find me and I will gladly give you that book. This is, this is what he says. Whether we have been sinned against or have sinned ourselves into misery, the Bible says God is not tight-fisted with mercy, but open-handed. Not frugal, but lavish. Not poor, but rich. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most, make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. Friends, this is the God we worship and serve. And we want you to come and adore him with us. Let's turn to him and pray and praise to him now. Oh, Father, we thank you for your great mercy on an undeserving people. We pray today that we would see your mercy in all the small things, but all of those would point us not to ourselves and that we have deserved them, but all of those little gifts would point us to the grand fact that the giver of all good gifts himself stepped into humanity to save us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to know you, to extend and show your mercy to others, and that you would receive our praises as the God of all mercy. And we pray this now in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.